That's what our life is formed around, is the promise of the season. The promises aren't always realized, but that's what we build our lives on. Hello and welcome to Notes from the Yard. You're listening to episode 32, Promises, Promises. Beekeepers begin each season with faith that familiar weather and bloom patterns will hold. And there's hope that this year's configuration will support a good harvest. Patterns make agriculture possible, and at the same time, they're unpredictable. My name is Laura Tyler, I'm your producer and host. This is episode 32, Promises, Promises, written by Tom Theobald in 1991, and read by Tom in 2021. Sitting in the garden, as the last thin arc of sun drops behind the Indian peaks, I feel the chill air settling from the high country, flowing down the canyons to spill slowly out onto the darkening plains. As lights begin to twinkle on down here, the mountains deepen into purple, the divide etched knife-sharp against the backlit cloudless, steel-gray sky. All around me, in trees and bushes, robins perch. Some sing their evening song to mark a newfound territory, but most are squabbling. The ones which sing arrived two weeks ago, the squabblers only yesterday. These new arrivals represent the main wave of springtime robins headed north, and for the next few days, we will be flush with birds. Then, they will pass, and only those with territories well-defined will stay to sing their song at dawn and dusk. For now, the resident robins are in a dither over all the strangers. A dog-fighting pair zips by my ear in the growing dark like high-speed bats as the flock begins to settle into the cedars for the night. As I sit quietly in the waning light, I think about what this little natural drama means. More than any other bird, the robins symbolize the start of a new season with their arrival in the spring. They are amazingly adaptable birds. And from coast to coast, from seashore to northern forest, urban neighborhood to timberline wilderness, they seem equally at home. Given just a window ledge, they can wring a livelihood from almost any environment. To millions of Americans, they symbolize the promise each new season holds. Although I've lived with robins all my life, I've come to feel a special affinity for this gritty little bird over my years of beekeeping, for the promise which they represent. Agriculture is, after all, built upon just such promises as these, some clear and substantial, others vague and flimsy. 
In a leap of faith, we build our lives on a foundation of promises. That rain and sun and warmth will come. That hail and wind and drought will not. That our skills will serve when promises don't pan out. We start with just a bit of seed, some soil, the calves, the lambs, the ungrown grass, and bet our fortunes that the promises will be kept. We're gamblers all. It is about this time of year that I begin to guess at what the bee season may be like. While brood rearing is well underway, and the population of most of the colonies is growing, this growth has been at the expense of winter stores. By the time the dandelions bloom in late April, the bees will have used up most of the honey stored from last season. The dandelions are crucial to what the season may hold. Actually, I want the honey gone by dandelion time. I want ample empty comb space for the spurt of brood rearing the dandelions will stimulate. Comb space for the new honey that will come in by the bucketful. I bank upon the promise of the dandelions. But if they fail, then there will be hard times ahead. At worst, it could mean starvation. At best, the bees will eke their way along till June and enter the productive season in a weakened state. But there's another promise in between, which must be kept as well. Until now, aside from adequate warmth, the weather hasn't been a major factor in the growth of the colonies. The bees need the March pollen from the early trees to support brood rearing, but these trees will flower almost regardless of the weather. I can depend on them whatever the early spring is like. Now I need the spring rains or snows. For the stockman, they bring on the grass. For the beekeeper, the moisture brings the dandelions and other spring flowering plants. If the rains do come, then the dandelions will as well, and one of the early hurdles will be passed. The bees and I can then steam on to other promises to be kept or broken. But without something in the sky in the next two weeks, we are all in trouble. But that's the gamble, isn't it? Promises, promises. This was a, a short and sweet and beautiful little piece. Is there anything you want to tell us about it? Not really. This is what beekeepers focus on. They focus on the change of seasons and the, the blooming of different families of plants and the arrival and departure of different birds. This is part of the background that beekeepers are aware of all the time. This is part mm -hmm. of the background of our life. You use this word squabbling um, a couple of times connected with the birds. Yes. Can you tell me what squabbling means? Squabbling is just kind of this random conversation 
I, I use the robins as an example because they arrive in very large numbers. If they have established a territory, be it a ranch or your backyard, those robins will declare their territory morning and evening with their song. But if it's the later arrivals that have come in large numbers that have no tie to any territory or the land, they're just arguing over everything. They're arguing over the number of robins there are. They're arguing because there's so many of them there. They're <laughs> arguing because they don't have a territory and won't have until they've moved further north. I'm interested in hearing more about the title, Promises, Promises. Do you remember where that came from? I don't. But that's what our life is formed around, is the promise of the season. The promises aren't always realized. But that, that's what we build our lives on, the promise that when we plant things, they're going to come up and we'll have enough water for them to mature. I think southern Wyoming is a perfect example. When the spring rains come, June, southern Wyoming looks like Ireland. Mm. Green like a golf course. And that's what we all hope for. Mm -hmm. Because so many years have gone by since you wrote this piece, I felt that the message of the piece, counting on these promises, it feels different to me hearing it now than it would have 20 years ago. Really? Yeah, it does. Even as recently as 10 years ago, I had a lot of faith in the resilience of planetary systems, I guess you could call them. Mm -hmm. And at the time... You and I were talking a lot about the neonicotinoid pesticides that were yes. impacting the bees. And I, I had a feeling then that, yeah, this is really bad right now, but eventually these pesticides will go out of fashion and then these eternal cycles will reassert themselves. And I would say more lately in Colorado with all the wildfires that we're having and then this kind of more intense drought and flood cycle, I have less faith. I guess uh, my focus would continue to be the neonicotinoid family of pesticides. We were warned 20 years ago that the effect of the neonicotinoids on living things was cumulative and irreversible. And I think we have reached a point where the environment has been heavily contaminated at toxic levels with these chemicals, and we are about to see the results. I hope I'm wrong. I don't think I am. What type of advice do you have for people that are just coming up in beekeeping in any aspect of agriculture about how to cope with these unpredictable and changing patterns? Boy, I hesitate to, to say much of anything because my view of what's become is pretty dark. I hope I'm wrong. I hope that I have misjudged the evidence. I don't think I have. I think the neonicotinoids 
have already had a major influence in the survival of a, well, I saw recently 40% of the insect world is on the road to extinction. I mean, these are huge consequences that were not unknown at the time that these chemicals were introduced and endorsed. And I think we're at the point where we're beginning to see the consequences of that heavy poisoning of the environment with chemicals that have a long-term effect. So I try not to enter into this discussion with relatively naive newcomers, but as I said earlier, my view of what's happening and what's coming is pretty dark. What do you think is coming ahead? I think extinction for many of the uh, life forms that exist on the earth. I think this has been a horrible period. And corporations consciously made the decision to employ these chemicals, knowing full well what the consequences were going to be. They put the safety of the earth at risk for profit. And they did that knowingly. And it's my view that that is criminal and should be prosecuted as such. Mm. Okay, so let's say that we do that. Let's say that's possible. And then what? Then what happens after that? It may be too late. Some of the early uh, scientists who offered warnings, one of which was Hank Tanneke's from Holland, who came upon his view of neonicotinoids from his uh, career in cancer research. He said the effect of these are cumulative and irreversible. And even the smallest dose, given the element of time, will produce the same endpoint. And I believe that's where we are. We've ignored that warning for 20 years, I said recently in a communication to some of my peers that Rachel Carson is frowning down upon us. Mm-hmm. She warned us 60 years ago, and we paid no attention. Mm-hmm. And then what advice do you have for folks who are maybe just coming up in their first, second, third, fifth season as farmers, beekeepers? What kind of advice do you have? I think we have to continue to do the best we can, despite what we are up against, which appears to be enormous odds. But I think we have to continue to try. Thank you for listening to Notes from the Bee Yard. We'll be back in two weeks with episode 33 on Friday, June 3rd at noon. In the meantime, hop on over to notesfromthebeeyard.buzz to subscribe.